We'll turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. It is our privilege as God's people to have God's Word, the communication from God that contains all that we need for life and godliness, the foundation of our life, the instruction for our living. And in Romans chapter 12, We've been taking a look week after week at the opening verses here, which give us a great summary of what the Christian life is all about and how it is motivated. So if you take a look at those opening verses again, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Mind renewal. It's something that all of us need. It's something that we not only do on Sunday morning in this hour, but it's a work that God is doing in us, through us, and that we are participating in, as the command is here given to us, to have our minds renewed The world is going to be working contrary to mind renewal, but Christ and his spirit is working in us, and we want to work along with him, working out our salvation. As we continue through Romans 12 through 16, we're going to be looking at the specifics that fill in the details of this general call. The call on our life is to present ourselves as a holy sacrifice to God. And as we present our life to God each day, this is a a mindset. This is how we wake up in the morning and we say, here I am, I'm presenting myself as a living sacrifice to God. And then we need to know, well, how specifically do we do that? So you have the general mindset, but then you need the specific instructions to be able to say, okay, this is how I'm going to put that into practice. And so we've been taking a look the last couple of weeks into the subject of spiritual gifts. That is that each one of us, as a priest of God, as a minister in the temple of God, which is what the congregation of believers is, each one of us has been uniquely gifted by God in order to serve the saints in some supernatural spiritual capacity. You can divide that up into a list of gifts like Paul does here and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Or you can just uh, take a, a broader division like Peter does and talk about those who speak, speaking the words of God, and those who serve, serving in the strength that God supplies. So God gives us the words to speak, he gives us the strength to serve, and those are really the dual aspects of our ministry together. Now, as we continue further on then into Romans 12 this morning, we're coming to verses 9 through 21, and our title for this morning, as you see, is Love's Instruction, that the greatest command that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to us, his one command that we must never forget, is the command to love one another the way that Christ has loved us. And as we talked about last week, we have to be careful that we allow the scripture to inform what love is. And that Jesus Christ himself is that perfect example in laying down his life for the brethren. And so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. And so there's very many specific commands in the New Testament about what it means to love. And so here in Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, we've got specific command after specific command. You can count them up. I haven't counted them. But quite a few commands coming at us one after another 
that are filling in the details of what genuine love is, what real love is, what God means when he commands us to be loving one another and to be fervent in that love. So I love the general commands, I love the specific commands, and that's what we're going to dive into here today. Follow along in your Bibles. I'm going to read for us Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We have love's instruction given to us. How do we do that great command of God to love one another as Christ has loved us? And what does it look like in the action? Not only when we are together as a congregation in our our life on a week-by-week basis with the saints, but also in relationship to the world. So he starts with a focus on the church, but then he broadens his focus out to even those who are persecutors of the church and enemies of God's people. We are a people who are called to love. So our outline here is focusing on four aspects of love's instruction. Number one, we are to have a genuine love. Number two, we are to have a familial love. The third, a zealous love. And finally, a conquering love. Isn't that great that God has given us a genuine, familial, zealous, conquering love? That's something that you could memorize and be thinking about during the week as you go over the outline. What kind of love are you supposed to have in your family? What kind of love are you supposed to have among the saints? What kind of love are you supposed to have in the world? That you want a genuine, familial, zealous, conquering love. Let's take a look at the first one, genuine love. Right there in the opening verse of Romans 12, 9, our section today. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. That is a wonderful command because love is the chief of all virtues. The Bible identifies love as the goal of God's commandment. That all that God instructs us is all summarized in this one command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself. And this becomes Jesus' prime directive then to love one another as Christ has loved us. And so this love is the head of all virtues. It's the first in the fruit of the Spirit. And being the chiefest of virtues, then it is going to be the virtue that is pretended to the most. It's the virtue that is going to be imitated. It's the virtue that's going to be put on. It's the virtue that's going to be feigned because everyone wants to be perceived 
as virtuous. And so people, being what we are, we're going to act as if we are loving even when we are not loving. This is the key insight here that you want to take with you, not only to examine yourself, but also to examine those around you to recognize that genuine love, real love, it's a rare thing. There are many who will profess to be your friend. There are many who will act like your friend. But time proves the value of that friendship. We talked about last week how the name for one group of Christians is the friends. And what a wonderful description that is for what Christians are to be towards one another. And as we see in this passage, towards all men. But there are many who pretend to be a friend who over time you will find out are not genuine friends. This is the sad story of life. This is the sad story of experience. All of us start off in innocence just thinking that everyone who pretends to love and who acts like our friend really does love us and really is our friend. And as we come to be disappointed in the love of others towards us and find out that it was a pretended virtue and not a real virtue, then we also have to have the humility of mind to turn the focus back on ourselves and say, how many times have I pretended to be a friend? How many times have I acted like I loved somebody, but really I had my own purposes? I had my own desires at heart, and I was really just using that person instead of really being a true friend to that person. So if we find that it's rare in others, then we have to be humble enough to accept the fact, well, it's probably more rare in myself than I recognize. We can fool ourselves into thinking that we are genuinely loving people when in fact, God looking at our heart recognizes that there's a great degree of selfishness and pride that is really the root of this false front that we put on in front of people. A man should be what he appears to be. But so many of us are not what we appear to be. The face that we put on in front of the world, the words that we put out there, the image that we project is not the reality. And here the scripture is calling us to be a genuine people, a genuinely loving people. This is the light that is to be shining in a dark world. Now, there's many false lights. As he said, there's, there's many communities that pretend to love. They say that they have their best interests at heart. They say that they're going to look out for one another and stick with one another. But, but there is really evil there at the center of those communities. And we want to be what is different that time is going to test whether or not this community is a genuine community of love or whether we are just like all the others in the world who are pretending and putting out an advertisement of here's a place where you can come and be loved. But in fact, it is not true. Let us have love that is genuine. And this is something that is the work of God. It's not something that you can generate in and of yourself. It is something that comes from the one who has created us the one who has redeemed us, the one who has shown to us his mercies. And it's only on the basis of those mercies that we are able to present ourselves as a living sacrifice where love is genuine and unfeigned. What a rare jewel this kind of love is. A man might give all the world for one true friend, and it would be a good trade. I forget who it was that said that, but it stuck with me. 
A man might give all the world for one true friend and it would be a good trade. And one of the problems with having so much in the world is you don't know who your friends are because everyone is there just to use you for your yacht and for your Super Bowl tickets and for your awesome pad where they can hang out and have fun. And that's what the world does. They just use people and they call it friendship. But that kind of friendship is not what God has demonstrated for us. That kind of friendship is not the love that is the genuine mark of God's people. Now you see also there in verse 9 that this genuine love that we're called to is only going to be genuine if we hold fast to what is good and abhor what is evil. In order for love to be real, to be genuine, it has to have a purity to it. There has to be a pureness of heart. And so if you belong to a community that says that they love you, but yet abhors what is good and clings to what is evil, you will find out that that is impossible. People who love what is evil cannot genuinely love. Love, as we're talking about here, a love that is not just using people, that is not just pretend, this only comes from a pure heart. We've got some scripture verses here that go along with this idea. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 says that we have purified our souls by obedience to the truth. That's what comes first. Until the human soul is purified, it is not able to love. These things are inseparable. Purity, moral purity, and love cannot go without one another, that love only flows from a morally pure heart. And so God, he washes us and cleanses us from the filth of our sin in order that we might be able to have this kind of love. And so since we have been purified for a sincere, notice that word sincere, that's the exact same word that we have here in Romans chapter 12 verse 9 is genuine, a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from what? from a pure heart. The world is telling lies and believing lies that they can have a community of love where there's not moral purity. Without moral purity, that love is just using one another and it is not a love that will last or will stand the test of time. And so the command to abhor what is evil is actually an extension of the command to let love be genuine. Now normally... That would strike us as odd in our culture because we think of abhorrence, which is a a moral reversion, a hatred, as being the opposite of love. And the culture that we live in wants to tell us that love is accepting of everything. And love does not reject anything or anyone for any action that they might commit. And this idea of total acceptance is exactly contrary to what God's Word says that in order for love to be genuine, we must abhor what is evil. Why is that? Why do we have to reject evil in order to have genuine love? Evil is by nature harmful. In fact, you could translate the word evil as harm. Moral harm, physical harm. That idea is inherent in the Old Testament word for evil and in the New Testament concept as well. Evil is what is harmful to the created order, to the soul of man. It's what's harmful to our relationship with God. And so love, biblically defined, is what is healthy and good. 
And so in order to be seeking what is healthy and good for people, you have to be rejecting what is harmful. You can't accept what is harmful and say that you're working for people's good. Now, you might deceive yourself and you might be thinking, well, it's not really harmful. But just because the mind of man thinks something is not harmful doesn't prove anything. Time will show that when you go against what God's Word says, when you reject the moral instruction of Scripture, that that produces great harm. It produces psychological harm. It produces social harm. It produces spiritual harm. It produces harm on all levels. And so any people, any group that wants to be a loving community must abhor what is evil, what is harmful. And not only do you hate what is bad, but you cling to what is good. You know, sometimes Christians have been accused of only being known for what they're against and that uh, people only get passionate about, about what they're against. I don't know. Maybe that's true in some cases. But to me, I think these just go hand in hand. That if you're going to abhor what is evil, you're going to be going the opposite direction, holding fast onto what is good. And what is good, that's what's healthy. That's what promotes all that God has created us and meant to be. And notice it says, hold fast. So yes, it's true. You can't just focus on the evil in the world. You have to hold fast onto what is good. You can't just reject evil in your own life, but instead you've got to be holding on to what is good. Now, what does it mean to hold fast what is good? Well, it means mental discipline. Mental discipline is required to hold fast to what is good. This is taking control of your imagination, taking control of your thought life, taking control of the meditations of your heart so that you don't allow your mind to just wander wherever the winds of this current time are taking minds, but instead you have your mind focused and fixed and anchored on what is good. And the Bible reveals so many different aspects of what is good. So this general command, coming from the command of Scripture, to have this sincere brotherly love and the connection there between rejecting what is evil and holding fast to that which is good. The other verse I wanted to show you here in this context is 1 Timothy 1.5. This is a verse I quote very often, and I kind of take it as my life verse. That the aim of our charge is love. All the doctrine that we teach, all the history that we teach, all that's in the Bible, everything that is here in the instruction that God has given to us, the goal of all of that is love. But that love, it can only come from what? Notice what it says. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. There's our word sincere again, right? Unhypocritical. Now, Jesus, as he walked through this world, he was a sincere man. He was a genuine man. Perhaps the only sincere man, the only genuine man who's ever been here. And what really bothered the Lord Jesus was how he would look and see among the religious people how hypocritical they were. The word hypocrite, it has the idea of putting on a mask. It's being concerned about your image, projecting what you want people to think about you that is not what you really are. And that was the key criticism. If you read through the Gospels, that was the key criticism that Christ had of Judaism, that it was hypocritical. The leaders were hypocritical. And so this is a vice that is especially dangerous for spiritual leaders. Now, spiritual leaders, by and large, are hypocrites. We project one image, but we're something else. And Jesus hated that 
And this is why the command to let love be genuine comes first in this list of the marks of Christian character. Now, when we talk about abhorring what is evil, I wanted to show you this passage from Deuteronomy chapter 7 as an example of what it means to abhor what is evil. It says there, as God is speaking to the people of Israel, their carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. This is an evil thing. It is to be abhorred. You destroy it. You burn it with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is on them. So you say, well, there's, the silver and the gold aren't evil. You know, we can take the silver and the gold and then destroy the idol. God created the silver and gold and we'll repurpose that for good things. And God says, nope. You're going to hate idols so much that you don't even take the silver and the gold from the idol. Don't take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. As Jude was writing to the people in the New Testament, he said that you must hate even the garment that is stained by the flesh. That you abhor what is evil so much that you reject even the things that are associated or connected with that evil. There's a strong moral abhorrence here. And the example in Deuteronomy is that of idolatry. In the next verse, he continues and says, you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Now, God wouldn't have to give this command if it wasn't our tendency to do the opposite. We tend to lose our sense of moral abhorrence we tend to lose our sense of moral aversion because we're just surrounded by this stuff all the time. We just come to expect it, and so we just kind of get comfortable with it. And God says, that's not how I want my people to be. I want you to be a holy people who are not conformed to this world, and there needs to be in your heart an abhorrence, a hatred for what is evil. Don't allow yourself to get to the point where you're comfortable with the evil that is in the world with the idolatry that is in the world, with the blasphemy that is in the world. Don't get comfortable with it. Reject it entirely. And as you're rejecting it, then cling and hold fast with all of your might to that which is good. This is not a playground. This is a battleground. We've got to reject what's evil and cling to what's good. The other verse here in our opening section on unfeigned love is Proverbs chapter 13, verse 5. We had our scripture reading earlier from Proverbs. And there it says, The righteous hates falsehood. He hates it. He hates it. But the wicked brings shame and disgrace. So hate means you reject it. You push it away. You want nothing to do with it. But the wicked, as opposed to hating falsehood, they're just bringing it in. They're like, hey, let's let's shovel some of this shame and disgrace into our household, into our neighborhoods, into our schools. And they want to bring in the shame and the disgrace. So there's a big difference here between the righteous and the wicked. That's a a concept that has been lost in our culture. There are the righteous and there is the wicked. There are those who hate evil and those who are hating good. And these are opposite to one another. That's why the command is to not be conformed to the world. The righteous, the wicked. Oh, how could you say that there's the righteous and the wicked? What a judgmental statement there in Scripture. It's making a distinction a distinction between moral goodness and moral evil. That kind of distinction is no longer allowed in polite society, but it is the distinction that we have in God's word and in our community. 
the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between moral evil and moral goodness. So we're coming here then to the second part of our outline, and you see there that not only is love supposed to be genuine, not a pretended virtue, but a real virtue, but it's to be of a familial nature. Paul continues in verse 10 where he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Love one another with brotherly affection. These words for love one another and brotherly affection are closely related and it's somewhat redundant because Paul is driving home this point. We are God's family and perhaps you have seen what good family love is supposed to look like or perhaps you haven't seen what good family love is supposed to look like. But a family that is in the Lord a family that knows God and loves God, they are a family that sticks together. They are a family that looks out for one another. They are a family that has genuine affection in their heart. You're not just loving somebody because you've been commanded to. You're loving somebody because you are connected to that person. I was listening to one preacher this week talking about how people would used to say, well, you know, I love that person in the Lord. And what they meant by that was, uh, I don't, personally like them at all, but God has commanded me to love them, and so I'm going to treat them well. Sometimes in families, we do rub one another the wrong way and get on each other's nerves, but there's still a deep connection there. And so we shouldn't just love one another in the Lord reluctantly, but here Paul is saying that we're supposed to have genuine affection for one another. And you say, well, how can I have genuine affection for somebody that I just don't like? You know, can't change me, I can't change them, that's just the way it is. No, you can change you. You can change you, otherwise Paul wouldn't give this commandment. And of course you can't do it alone, but, but God is at work in you, right? And so there might be things about someone that rub you the wrong way. But that does not give you an excuse to not develop genuine affection for them. Now how do you do that? Well, you don't spend all your time thinking about the ways they annoy you. That's not going to help. Instead, you think about the connection. You think about the good times. You know, siblings can get on each other's nerves, right? If you spend all your time thinking about, well, I can't believe he said this. I can't believe he did that. He's so annoying when he does this. Well, then that's not going to create a lot of affection. But if you spend your time thinking about, you know, when he did that, that meant a lot. And that showed that he really cared. And when we did this together, that really connected us and bonded us. And what your mindset. This is a command. And so you do have the power to create affection for your wife, for your husband, for your kids, for the people in the church. How do you think about the people in your life? Is it promoting familial love? Or is it tearing it down? You're responsible for your thoughts. And these commands are directed to your heart. So he says... Love one another with brotherly affection. And he's talking about a genuine brotherly affection, not something that you just put on a face of pretending to have this affection for one another. No, God commands the affections. And he doesn't command anything that is impossible. He goes on and gives some details of what family devotion looks like. You see in verse 13, you're supposed to be contributing to the needs of the saints. When you provide for someone... When you give to someone, that forms a bond, that forms a connection. I have a connection with my family because I, I contribute to their needs, I provide for them. The service that Jamie does for the family, it creates that bond of family love and affection. And so when you give, 
to the needs of the saints. That creates a connection. That creates a bond. Contributing to the needs of the saints. And again, even if it's not financial contribution, there are other needs, emotional needs of the saints. And that's a big part of the next command is to seek to show hospitality. I like how the Bible says in 1 Peter, show hospitality to one another without complaint. You don't complain about the people that you're having over for showing hospitality, but instead you're focusing on the blessing that that person is to you in Christ. So seek to show hospitality, contribute to the needs of the saints. These are practical actions that people can take in order to build those connections. You can't really be friends with somebody unless you spend time with them. That's how friendships are made. And so have people over to your house. Spend time with God's people. Make friends of God's people. Build that family love. That's the command. And then also, you see in verse 15, that you are to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You have empathy. You have sympathy. You enter into the emotions of people's lives. When they have a tragedy, you're weeping with them. When they have a great blessing, you're rejoicing with them. When they get that promotion at work, you're congratulating them and, and being happy. And then when they get the, the illness and the sickness that knocks them out, then you're weeping with them. And so this is living life together as a family. This is a picture of the community that God is building in Christ. And then also verse 16 gives more specifics on this type of familial love, this family devotion, where it says, live in harmony with one another. That is connected to rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. That's a harmony where you're not being dissonant. Everyone in the church is really happy and, and you want to just rain on everyone's parade or everyone in the church is really sad and you just want to come in and talk about how great things are going for you. That's not making the connection with the people that are around you. You've got to learn how to connect with people where they are. And so you weep with those who weep. You live in harmony with one another. You rejoice with those who rejoice. And then the command there for humility. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. There's no one in the family of God that is beneath you. It doesn't matter how financially advanced you are. It doesn't matter how intellectually advanced you are. It doesn't matter how socially advanced you are or how socially financially or intellectually unadvanced someone else is, there's no one in the church that is beneath you. The most mature saint in Christ has a connection with the, the newest convert to Christ in the church. And there's that welcoming and loving so that we're not being high-minded. We're not thinking, well, you know, I'm important stuff and this person over here is not important, so I've got to talk to the important people in the church. And those non-important people in the church, well, they can talk to each other. There's none of that in a family. In a family, everybody is important, and everybody looks out for one another. And really, those who are the most capable in the family are those who are most taken up with caring for those who are least capable in the family. That's how a family works. So that's the associating with the lowly, and then never being wise in your own sight. You know, if you were talking about someone and you said, well, well that person is very wise, according to himself. When you put that according to himself on there, you're implying, well, other people don't think so, and he's the only one who thinks that he's wise. And that's exactly what Paul says here. He says, never be wise according to yourself, in your own sight. This reminds me of Proverbs chapter 25, verse 27. It is not good to eat much honey. Honey's good, just don't eat a lot of it. 
nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. Glory's good, just don't seek it out for yourself. You give honor to other people. Then he says there in verse 10, outdo one another in showing honor. What he's saying is, is that instead of trying to get honor for yourself, you're looking for how you can honor other people. Instead of sitting around the table and saying, you know, kids, you never thanked me for this and this that I did. Instead, you sit at the table and say, kids, you never thanked your mom for doing this and that and, and honoring the mother in the family. And the dad's not so much worried about his own honor. He's worried about the honor that is due to the wife, the mother in the family. And this is the way it is in the church. We're not here saying, hey, you know, nobody really noticed me or nobody really gave me any pats on the back and told me what a good job I did. We go to church and we're not looking for people to honor us. We're looking for who can I honor? And who can I point out and say, thank you. You did a great job. I really appreciate your work on this. That's outdoing one another and showing honor. And when somebody wants to honor me, I say, well, thank you, but I really want to honor you and, and say what an amazing job you did over here. And that is kind of the way it's supposed to be. Outdo one another in showing honor. It's not good to eat much honey, nor is it glorious to seek one's own glory. The third point here in our instruction on love is that love is to be zealous. We are zealous for the things that we love. Faith, hope, and love are not to be disinterested, dispassionate, apathetic. We're not supposed to be a church full of low-energy Christians. All right? A church full of low-energy Christians are those who say, well, there's work to be done. I'm kind of hoping someone else is going to do it. I just kind of like to sit and watch and critique what other people are doing. That's the spectator type of Christianity. And that's not what God calls us to. He's not called us to be spectators, armchair quarterbacks, but he's called us to be the passionate, high-energy Christians that God is worthy of. You might say, well, you know, I'm, I'm old, I'm tired, I just don't have the energy that I used to. Well, that might be true. But whatever energy you have can probably be increased. And whatever increase, it should be spent in the things of God, the work of God. Notice what he says there in verse 11. Direct your attention back to verse 11. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. These three to go together. The idea of being fervent in spirit is the idea that you're supposed to be on fire for the Lord. This is a term that we used a lot when I was young as a Christian. We talk about people who were on fire for the Lord. And I looked up and admired the people who were on fire for the Lord, and I wanted to be like them. And that's the way it should be. You should be able to look out in the church on a Sunday morning and say, there's somebody who's on fire for the Lord, and I want to be like them. And then you come to church, and you're being an example to other people of somebody who's on fire for the Lord, somebody who's zealous for the things of God. Not just saying, well, you know, I do a little bit here and there, and I'm happy with what I'm doing, and, and I don't really want to be overworked. You don't want to burn out in ministry, you know. I had a great professor in seminary, Alex Montoya, and he told all of us guys, you know, it's better to, to burn out than to rust out. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He says, you don't want to be slothful in zeal. You don't want to rust out and say, well, you know, I used to be on fire for God, and now I'm more mature, and uh, I don't have all that youthful zeal that I had. And my wisdom tempers my zeal now. And no, wisdom doesn't temper zeal. Wisdom increases zeal. And if you think that your wisdom is tempering zeal, you might have the wrong kind of wisdom. When we're talking about the work of God, we're talking about the things of God, we're talking about things that matter, things that deserve passion, 
things that deserve excitement. You know, if a preacher gets up into the pulpit and he's talking about the most amazing truths in the history of the world, but he's got no excitement and no passion for those things, you've got to wonder if he's in the right line of work. And the same way with the servants in the church. You are serving with the strength that God supplies. God is not apathetic. God is not disinterested. God is not coasting. The Bible is constantly encouraging Christians to ramp up their energy, to ramp up their service, and to not let the fire die down. Let's take a look at some verses here. All right, so 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. For this reason, I remind you, you guys need reminders, I need a reminder, that we are supposed to fan into flame the gift of God. God has given you a ministry. God has given you a spiritual gift. God has given you a calling, a purpose, in order to join Him in the work of building up the temple of God in the world today. Fan that into a flame. Don't let it die down. Be on fire in your service for God. God deserves it. If He has loved you so much, should we love Him the less? And this gift of God that was spoken of in Timothy's case, was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands. And notice what Paul says. He said, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Fear can cause us to want to tamp down our zeal. I don't want to stand out too much from the crowd. I just kind of want to blend in and go along with the flow. Because the ones who stand out, they're the ones who tend to get shot at first by the enemy. And Timothy, he was a preacher, he was a teacher, he was a leader. And when persecution comes, persecution tends to come on the leaders, the teachers, the the public speakers. And so Timothy had to be reminded to not have a spirit of fear. And I need to be reminded not to have a spirit of fear. As the world starts to get more threatening, as the world starts to say, you better do what we tell you to do or else then I've got to stand up and say, we are the people of God, we're going to do what God says, we'll take the or else, me first, since I'm the one that's speaking on this, and I'll get it first. So don't let fear tamp down your zeal for the things of God. Don't let fear of what the world is going to say and what the world is saying keep you from sharing the gospel with the lost. Be willing to stand out for Christ. Another proverb, this is a great day for Proverbs as we're looking at practical instruction here. From chapter 10, verse 4, A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Now, of course, we naturally think of just finances and money and household income and things like that, which is the main idea here. But this spiritual idea applies to the house of God as well. A slack hand causes poverty of spiritual blessings in the church. We are to be filled up with all the fullness of God. We are to attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. We're supposed to have all the fullness of deity dwelling in this temple of God. And if your hand is slack, we'll be poor. It's the slack hand that causes the poverty of the church. But it's the diligent hand that makes the church spiritually rich. You want a church that is filled with the fullness of God, or are you happy with just a little bit? It's fine. You know, we're not fighting and arguing. I can come to church on Sunday morning and sing the songs, and I can smile and get along with people, and it's fine. It's good enough. 
God says it's not good enough. There's so much more that you can have. There's so much more that you can enjoy. Put your hand to the work and build the church and see what God is able to do. Get a vision of what God's people are called to be and then put your hand to the work that God has given you to do so that we can have those spiritual riches. One other proverb here, very helpful. Proverbs chapter 13, verse 4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. You know, for the sluggard who says, It's enough, we're good, we're fine, we don't need to work hard, we can just kind of coast and get by on what we have, well, you know what eventually happens? You run out. You run out. And then you're craving and you're saying, man, I sure wish we had some of this. I sure wish we could do that. Well, if you'd worked, then you'd be able to do those things. You'd be able to have those things. You'd be able to enjoy that. You know, good things aren't obtained by wishing. Good things are obtained by working. Young people, good things are not obtained by wishing. They're obtained by working. And when you work, then you're going to be richly supplied. And when you're talking about spiritual riches, that's even all the more worth working for. The spiritual riches of having a community that loves you, a community that has your back, a community that's going to be with you through the thick and the thin, through the fire, through the flood, surround yourself with good people and build the house of God. That is a valuable treasure to have in your life. And when you get to the end of your life and you say, oh, I'm, I'm lonely, I'm tired, I, I, I'm depressed, I got nothing, I got nobody... It's because you didn't work. You crave and you were a sluggard and you got nothing. But if you've got friendship because you have genuinely loved the friends, then you're rich and you're richly supplied. Good actions, good consequences. Bad actions, bad consequences. So do the work. Don't be lazy and reap the reward, reap the benefit. I'm not asking you here to do anything that's not in your own interest. I'm asking you to do what is good for you and good for God and good for God's people. Whatever the Word of God says, that's what we want to do. Now, the key here is prayer in verse 12. You go back to verse 12 and you see, as we rejoice in hope and we're patient in tribulation, we are constant in prayer. And I put this verse up here on prayer because I find that so often when we're evaluating our prayer life, we just look at it in isolation. We say, well, we look at our own personal prayer life and it's like, man, I wish I was a, a better prayer warrior. And I think every Christian wishes they were a better prayer warrior. But I put this verse up here to encourage you that you don't have to be a prayer warrior alone, but that this is something that we can advance on together. Because in Acts chapter 1, you see all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. And when in Romans chapter 12, Paul's talking about being devoted to prayer being constant in prayer, he's not saying you've got to go out and do this by yourself. He's saying you can do this with the family of God. You can do this as the temple of God, the community of God. And, and that's why the prayer time is such an essential part of our Sunday morning worship service. But it doesn't have to end there. You know, our church used to have a prayer meeting. And Monday nights or Tuesday nights, was it? Where we'd, we'd get together in the houses of one of the folks in our church and, and we'd have our prayer meeting. We could have a prayer meeting. 
You can start a prayer meeting. You know, the elders don't have to start a prayer meeting. You can start a prayer meeting. And if you're a leader, just lead. And if you think the church needs more prayer, then let's do more prayer. We are in this together, devoting ourselves to prayer. And God's people should be seen as people who are always getting together for the purpose of prayer. So if you have people over to your house and you're showing hospitality, say, well, you know, we're not just going to eat and chit-chat, but we're going to have a prayer meeting. So let's move over to the living room and I want to hear about what God is doing in your life. How can I pray for you? Here's what God is really laying on my heart. Here's how you can pray for me and my ministry and we're going to pray. And when somebody asks you to pray for them, they send you a text, they, they call you on the phone, they're in person, they say, you know, I, I'd really appreciate it if you'd pray for me on something. Then take the time right on the spot to pray for them. Don't say, okay, I'll pray for that later. Say, let me pray for you right now. Let's pray together right now. And you get together with Christians and you go out and have coffee together. You sit down together and you say, you know, let's have a prayer meeting. Let's pray together right here in public. You're not just giving thanks for your food, but you're actually devoting yourself to prayer. And so don't just think of prayer as something you do in isolation. But here, I think in the context of our life together, loving one another, that's the kind of prayer that Paul is calling us to. Um, not to say you shouldn't have personal alone times in prayer, but a big part of it is our community. Finally, the love that we have is not just a genuine love. It's not just a family love. It's not just a zealous love, but it is a conquering love. Love conquers all is a great saying, and that's what we see here. Because not only do we live in the temple of God, but we also live in the world that is ruled over by Satan. And the enemy of our souls hates us, and he's going to send people after us in order to persecute us. This is what you see there in verse 14. Now, I want you to notice something. At the end of verse 13, when he says, seek to show hospitality, the word seek there in the original is actually the same root word that is the word used for persecution in the next verse. So that's the connecting between the end of verse 13 and the beginning of verse 14 is this word to pursue. Because when you are being persecuted, you're being pursued by people who are coming after you. And so Paul says, I want you to be coming after and pursuing hospitality, to be seeking to show that hospitality. But then his mind transitions from us pursuing hospitality to the world pursuing us to persecute us. And the world is going to persecute you. And the command is, bless those who persecute you. There's an assumption that you're going to be persecuted in this command. Because if you're not persecuted, then you don't have anybody to bless. The assumption is you're going to be pursued by the world in order to harm you and dissuade you from following Christ. And when people persecute you, your command is to bless them. To bless them. You don't approve of evil. That's not what blessing somebody means. The command is to abhor what is evil. But in abhorring what is evil, you seek to be a blessing to those who are caught in Satan's snare and who are deceived, self-deceived, and deceived by the lies in the world in order to open up their eyes to the truth to show that you mean them no harm, that you have no malice towards them, that you are not seeking to pressure them the way the world tries to pressure people into certain behaviors, but instead you are commending to their minds and their hearts what is true and right and good and encouraging them to pursue that with their own free will. 
Now, when I sit down with somebody and I, I talk with them about the biblical vo- values versus the world that is going in a terrible, harmful, evil direction, I'm not there to put political pressure on them. I'm there to get them to think, to open up their mind to what is right and what is good and what is true so that their soul can be restored to God. That's what we're doing here. We're trying to bring souls back into restoration, a relationship with the Creator. We're not just playing political games, saying, hey, you know, I represent a powerful voting block here in in this area. You better listen to what I have to say or or you're going to get voted out of office. That might be true, but that's not the mission of a Christian in the church. That our goal, our mission is to make disciples. Our goal is to make the truth of God known to the heart and soul of those who are separated from God by their sin. And so the world is our mission field. The people who are in this world are those that we are going to love in the truth and they will see the genuineness of that love. They'll see these people are different. They're not just another political movement. They're not just another political force. These are people who have a heart of genuine love. We overcome the world with good and not with evil. Do not allow the tactics of the world to become the tactics of Christians. The worldly tactics work. And Christians will be tempted to use the tools of the enemy in order to try to accomplish the purposes of God, and that is impossible. The purposes of God cannot be accomplished with the tools of the enemy. We malign no one. We speak evil of no one. We bless those who persecute us. Doesn't mean we agree with their false lying statements. It means we speak the truth out of a genuine desire for them to understand and know the truth and that we're willing to suffer. We're not trying to cause other people to suffer. We are the ones who are willing to suffer for others to show the genuineness of our love This is the conquering, overcoming love. The love that does not value its life even to the point of death. When I go and I talk with people who are not in Christ, my goal is not to make my life easier. My goal is to get them to know the truth. And they need to know that. My goal is not to get you to do what I want so that my life is easier. My goal is to get you reconciled to God because that is the best thing that's ever happened to me And that's what I want for you. Because I love you. With a sincere love. Look at the overcoming love at the end of these verses. Paul writes in verse 19, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Well, he shouldn't have said that about me. I know some things about him that I can say. Never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Leave room for God. You don't have to defend yourself. God will defend you. You don't have to defend yourself. God will defend you. Do you believe that? To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. Oh, he's finally getting what he deserves. Ha ha! That makes me happy. No. Be there to help the enemy, the one who has hated you. 
This is what it means to not be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. Don't be like them. Be like Christ. Don't be like them. Be like Christ. What if Christ had come and said, I don't really feel like dying on the cross for people who hate me and who've been persecuting me and for people who have pursued me from city to city and said that I was demon-possessed. They can get what they deserve. Would have been fine. You could say, I'm going back to heaven and I'm going to skip the cross. There's no reason why I have to die for these people. And it would not have been wrong in one sense, for him to do that. But while we were his enemies, he died for us. So let's show that to the world. Love conquers all. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray that you would give me a genuine love. I imagine that a lot of my love is, is fake. I suspect that a lot of what I think is love is, is probably just self-interest. I still got a long way to go. I've still got a lot of growing to do. And Lord, I need you every day. Without you, I would fall away. I'd fall back into the patterns of self-interest pride, being wise in my own eyes. Lord God, reveal to each one of us the insincerity that is in our love, the way that we love people and expect to get back in return, the way that we love people who are good to us, but we have little concern or have little energy for those who don't love us or haven't treated us the way that we want to be treated. Lord, I pray that you would really infuse this congregation with a Christ-like love that would be obvious to the world and that all people would know that we here are your disciples because we have genuine love. And Lord, I pray that our love would grow hot and boiling, that we would have a, a zeal for the service of the Lord. Lord, I pray for each individual that is, is here this morning or watching online. I pray that you would stoke up the fire of our flame. And, and yet at the same time, I'm, I'm hesitant to ask you to do that, God, because that's the command you give to us. And why should I ask you to do what you've told us to do? But we just confess that we can't do it without you. And we confess that we want it. And yet we confess there's something in us that doesn't. Lord, search us, know us, try our thoughts, lead us in the way that is everlasting. Accomplish your work and your will among us. And... We promise you that we will renew our efforts and work harder to carry out the commands that you've given to us, not using prayer as, a, as an excuse or a crutch to get out of our responsibilities, but only to recognize that from you, through you, and to you are all things. 
To you be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus now and forevermore. Amen.